For six weeks now, turning to Acts, we've been exploring Acts chapter 2 and the meaning of that, that redemptive historical event that we call Pentecost. Um, because it's a redemptive historical event, a lot of places in Scripture, I might stick more just in that passage, but in order to understand this moment in history, you have to understand all the history that's come before it. You have to see it in the scope of where it fits in God's plan for saving sinners like we are. And so we can only understand Pentecost when we understand that it is, in a sense, the climactic event of all of redemptive history. You might say, well, that, isn't that the cross or isn't that the resurrection? Well, yes, but we should see by now, it should be clear to us, that even on Pentecost, the first, the primary actor on Pentecost is not the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not diminishing the Spirit, but the primary actor is not the Spirit, but Christ, our risen King, who having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has now poured forth the Holy Spirit on his people. So even in Peter's sermon, and it's interesting, I've noticed this, now that I'm getting a clearer perspective on it, I've often felt like, oh, Pentecost, that's the Holy Spirit, you're just the Holy Spirit, that's, that's, what all, that's what Pentecost is. Then whenever I would read Acts chapter 2, I said, well, there's not much of the Holy Spirit here. Well, there, there is. But throughout the chapter, you're realizing the Holy Spirit really isn't the main actor, neither is the Holy Spirit the main theme of Peter's sermon, not even close So in Peter's sermon, the focus is not on the Holy Spirit, but on the person of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. So on the day of Pentecost, what does Peter preach about Jesus? Life, death, resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God, his receiving and pouring out the Holy Spirit, and his present rule and reign until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. So the Holy Spirit applies to us the finished work of Christ. And he manifests to us the present rule of Christ. The Spirit poured out applies to us the finished work of Jesus, and he manifests to us the present rule of Jesus in the heavens, over all this earth and particularly over us his people. So the whole thrust of Peter's sermon then, and we get this is all comes together here at the end. Peter, Peter builds to this climax, this conclusion, and here is his conclusion on the day of Pentecost. This is what it's all about. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. That's like the summation of his sermon and really of the whole implication of the day of Pentecost. Is Jesus ruling and reigning, establishing his kingdom in and through the spirit now poured out. We come now then to the people's response to Peter's proclamation of the gospel. This has been a long time in coming for us, six weeks. Um, In Acts chapter 2, 36 verses. We read in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men, brothers, what should we do? So to say that they were pierced to the heart is simply to say that they were deeply in your handout convicted, right? With an awareness of their great guilt. So when, our, when the Baptist confession speaks of a person's repentance, it sets that repentance, now this is not the same thing as repentance, but repentance is in this context. It lives in this world of that person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin. 
And I like the words made sensible. Because, because apart from the work of the Spirit, we are not sensible, are we? To the manifold evils of our sin. We are insensible to that. In other words, quoting the Westminster Confession, the point is not, first of all, the negative consequences of sin to us. That's not the first point. But rather the filthiness and odiousness of sin in itself. Sin is ugly. It is odious. It is filthy. And the fact that that it is contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God. It's not primarily about the fear of judgment. That's not where we... That's not the ultimate thing. It is the odiousness of sin. And I, I sense my guilt, that I am a guilty person. So here in Acts 2, these people, you can imagine this moment for them. They have suddenly been made sensible to something they were not sensible to before. They have become sensible to the fact that they are guilty. And what are they guilty of? Not just judicial murder, putting an innocent man to death. But they are guilty of blasphemy and treason against their rightful sovereign. Against God's own Messiah, whom he anointed and whom he sent into the world. This is what they've suddenly realized. And now, because they've been made sensible of this manifold evil of their sin, right? That's where it started. It's like, I am guilty. Now, if I'm guilty, but there's no consequences, well, maybe, uh, maybe I don't worry too much, right? But when I see that I'm guilty, I realize that there's consequences to my guilt. And so they were also terrified, no doubt, by the reality of blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the the, the moon turned into the sun being darkened and the moon turned into blood. The language Peter used from Joel. Because they were convicted with an awareness of their great guilt. Therefore they were trembling in your handout with an awareness of the judgment of God hanging over them. These two realities. My guilt the odiousness of my sin and therefore the judgment of God that hangs over me. What does the people's response then to Peter's preaching mean for what our own response should be to the preaching of the gospel? On the one hand, I think I want, we should be cautioned that we have to be careful we don't make a genuine conversion dependent on being sufficiently pierced to the heart. Like, were you convicted enough? You know, if you're not convicted enough, can you be saved? If you're not pierced to the heart like these people were, can you be saved? We have to remember that that particular Jewish generation was guilty of such a heinous sin. It was a sin only possible at one particular moment in the history of the world. We cannot commit that sin any longer that that generation committed. Now, I'm not saying that means we are less deserving of hell at some level. But, but they had, I mean, there's differences, right? So not only that, but God then called for all the righteous blood shed on earth to be charged against that generation. Therefore, their awareness of guilt, we can imagine their psychological state, right? But we don't have to be, to be genuinely converted does not require that we all have a certain psychological state that we have attained to. And this is what some, sometimes um, in, in, in our zealousness and earnestness to communicate a, a genuine conversion, we can become focused too much on the psychological state of the person, and not, not what the scriptures are really emphasizing. Now these people, because of what a sin they had committed, their awareness of guilt and of impending judgment must have been very much an overwhelming crisis experience for them. Right? We must not make that crisis experience the standard for all future generations of those who would be converted. On the other hand, 
The gospel message is always. It is this, by definition, the message of salvation from the guilt of personal sin. Guilt. And so also from that righteous judgment that the guilt of my sin demands. Okay. So how can I see my need for salvation from this guilt and from the judgment that is due to my sin without, here's the question, without a corresponding conviction of this guilt and a corresponding trembling under that judgment that hangs over each one of us outside of Jesus Christ. How can we have truly seen in your handout our need for salvation when there's been no piercing of the heart at all? And so we, I examine myself in this and we ask ourselves, how can I see the need if my heart has not been pierced whatsoever at all? With the guilt of my sin and the judgment that hangs over me outside of Jesus. Where there's been no conviction and no trembling that causes us to ask, what should we do? See, that question, even if I know the answer, is worth being asked. In fact, we are compelled to ask it. What should I do? The fact of the matter is that at this moment, I, I, I don't think these people are presuming that there is anything to be done. I'm not saying they, they assume there's not, but, but I think the, the state of their soul, <laughs> the state of their mind at this point is to simply be asking, what can I do, right? Is there anything left to be done? Is there, is there any hope for me? That's their question, And so while that particular generation of Jews, they had a unique reason to be asking that question because of the unique nature of the sin they were guilty of. But there's a sense in which we should all, each one of us, feel personally compelled to ask, what should I do? What can I do? Is there any hope for me? How can I be freed from the defilement and guilt of my sin and the coming righteous judgment my sin deserves? And see, again, my point here is not so much the solution as it is the state in me, the, the awareness in me of my guilt that, that brings me to ask that question. It's in the context of this question, then, that the gospel imperative comes to us as the awesome good news it really is. The imperative is good news. So Peter doesn't now go back and preach the whole gospel. He just preached the gospel. He just told about Jesus. And and you could say, well, what do you mean? How do you not know what to do? Didn't he just tell you that Jesus died and rose again according to God's plan? That he's now seated at the right hand of God? That he poured out the Spirit? Why are you asking what to do? Because Peter has not told him what to do yet. He's not said What is the gospel? That was the gospel good news. What is the gospel imperative? What what are they to do? And Peter said to them, repent. In short, it is not enough to be pierced to the heart. That is not repentance. It is not enough to be convicted that I'm guilty and that judgment is is coming upon me. Having been pierced to the heart, we must then, we must then repent. That was the imperative of, that John the Baptist came preaching. And you know, we, sometimes we hear, well, we need, we need to talk about repentance. And absolutely, and that's the point of much of this message. But I just want us to see that that's actually true. The Bible actually says that. Right? And when repentance is in any way left out at a, at a, at a definitional level, we have, we have lost the true response to the gospel. So Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent. A one word summary of what to do. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was the imperative 
And by imperative, I mean there's an imperative case in Greek that is the imperative that is here, command. Jesus came, began to preach, and he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. And now Christian baptism, when a Christian is baptized, it's a baptism of repentance. Peter says, uh, I'm sorry, that's what Peter says here. He says, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. So repentance, what we see, is essential. It is not, it's not anything dispensable in any way. It is utterly essential to the forgiveness of sins and to eternal life. Even though it is not the ground of these things. Jesus said to the Jews in Luke chapter 13, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Paul speaks of a godly sorrow that produces a repentance without regret, a repentance that leads to, or that is unto, salvation. Repentance unto salvation. In Luke chapter 3, we read about John's baptism, that it was a baptism of repentance for, or unto, or with a view to, the forgiveness of sins. Repentance. Luke 24, repentance and forgiveness of sins. He, 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 he joins them together with that conjunction. Repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in Jesus' name to all the nations. In these last two, notice an, a, a new ingredient here. In Acts chapter 11, we see that God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to, or that is unto, eternal life. And then in Acts chapter 5, the apostles proclaim that God has exalted Jesus to his right hand in order to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. Repentance and life. Repentance and salvation. It's always put together. But in these last two verses, what we, begin, what we see is that while repenting is something we do and something that we are commanded to do, it is also an evangelical or a gospel. Evangelical is the word euangelion from Greek. Euangelion is good news. Gospel, good news. So evangelical refers to gospel, good news. Right? It is an evangelical gospel. Grace. Repentance. When we hear repentance, we often focus purely on, on the law, which reveals our sin. Right? But we need to see repentance as, it is that, but it's more than that. Repentance is an evangelical, it is a gospel grace that God grants to us as a precious gift. It is in your handout a gift that God never fails to grant to all his elect in the covenant of grace. Therefore, Wherever there is not repentance, there's no salvation. There cannot be the forgiveness of sins or eternal life where there has not been repentance. Here in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And here he says it again. For unto, with a view to, the forgiveness of your sins. Now the point is not that God... Forgives me because I repented. And my, repent, my repentance is what he rewards with forgiveness. We'll see that. But what then is this repentance that's required of us? What is repentance? And that God gives so freely. That it's required of us, but God gives it freely to us. Whom he has called to himself. We have maybe many times heard this, this reality that the basic meaning of the Greek word for repentance is a change, a change of mind, a change of thinking. So in the Greek 
Old Testament, it translates Proverbs 20, verse 25 like this. It is a snare to a man hastily to consecrate some of his own property. Uh, For in that case, repentance comes after vowing. In other words, he changes his mind about the vow he made in haste. You You made a vow hastily and then you changed your mind and wish you hadn't. You've repented. You changed your mind. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, it says that God is not a man to repent, to change his mind. That's, that's all it's saying, change your mind. But evangelical gospel repentance is more than just changing my mind, isn't it? It includes a resulting change of course in your handout, a change of direction, Right? It's a fundamentally new orientation of my life. I think orientation really helps here. For example, we could think of being oriented, oriented no longer to the South Pole, but to the North Pole, or like a, like a magnet, right? Where is the magnet oriented, or on the compass needle? Where is it oriented? Instead of our lives then being oriented in the direction of self and sin, our lives are oriented in the direction of God and righteousness. There is a about face, a shift and a change. Repentance, therefore, is not simply to change my thinking. It is also, as a result of that change of thinking, to turn, or as a part of that change of thinking, it is to turn, emphasizing both the turning from, that's the law aspect, revealing my sin, that's the negative aspect, and a turning unto, that's the evangelical gospel aspect, a turning unto something. Let's see that turning from. The writer of Hebrews speaks of repentance from dead works. So that's the negative aspect. We're turning away from dead works. In Acts chapter 8, Peter says to Simon Magus, Therefore, repent of or turn away from this wickedness of yours. In Revelation chapter 9, it says that the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of, turn away from, the works of their hands, their idols, so as to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of or turn away from their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So now let's be careful again, okay? Because we can lose perspective here at some level. In many of these examples... We might especially picture a radical crisis conversion. I mean, if I've been living my life, and, and he's talking here, you might say, well, everyone who, who is angry in his heart is guilty of murder, right? So we have to repent of our murders, too. We repent of our murders. But, but those who have actually been living in sorceries and murders and sexual moralities and thefts, and like, these are like, especially those who are living these in outward senses, they come to a radical crisis experience of conversion. We know the difference, right? We've often said, I don't have that amazing testimony, right? No, all our, all our testimonies are equally amazing. But the confession is helpful here because it, when it talks about repentance, it specifically mentions those who are converted at riper years. So... That's a relative, right? So a 20-year-old is riper than a 5-year-old. Riper years. Um, Having some time, or for a more extended time, lived in the state of nature, and therein served diverse pleasures. So for these people, repentance is something radically obvious and visible. They've been going down the path of life, living their own, living for the lust of the flesh, the pleasures. And when they repent, it's like, whoa! Crisis experience. And if they don't turn from their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, their thefts, if they don't make a sudden decisive break with those practices, then of course they cannot be saved. That's not to say they don't fall into sin and all of this, but there's going to be a pretty radical change that's visible externally. 
But what about those who grow up in a Christian home? And they've, you know, maybe at 16, they've, they've kind of all their life, they've gone to church, they've lived a moral life, they've even they've been in family devotions and all of this. And, and then at 16, God just opens their hearts to, to see and to truly understand savingly the gospel. Um, there may not be the same crisis experience for that 16-year-old, right? Of repentance with a sudden, radically visible outward change. And yet, and yet what repentance is, there will always be a fundamental change in orientation. Okay. A conviction at the one level of guilt of my sin leads to a change of mind and thinking about sin. And so therefore, a turning away from sin as that, as that north pole, as it were, to which the needle is oriented. No longer am I oriented that direction. I've, I've changed, I've turned away, and now I am oriented towards God and righteousness. So Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I think there's a little bit tongue-in-cheek there because he's talking to people who considered themselves to be righteous but who were in fact sinners who thought they didn't need repentance because they were righteous but Jesus' point is we are all sinners therefore what do we all need? Repentance. We see that in Jesus' Statement that repentance for forgiveness of sins was to be proclaimed in his name where? To all the nations. It's an indiscriminate message to all. Repent. The Apostle Paul proclaimed this. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that everyone, everywhere, should repent. Turn. Repentance, then, is not only a turning away from sin, it is a turning unto, unto God. As the Catechism says, with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. In Acts chapter 3, Peter exhorts the people, Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, to whom you have returned. So repentance is turning to the Lord, so that from the Lord might come times of refreshing. It is a turning. Acts 14. Paul says to the pagan crowd who wanted to offer sacrifices to him and to Barnabas, he says, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, proclaiming the gospel to you. And, and it's interesting. He proclaims the gospel, and in proclaiming the gospel, he gives them an imperative, a command, that you should turn, turn from these vain things to a living God. Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, and he tells him, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. And from the authority of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. There again is the connection between repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Paul writes to the Thessalonian Christians, They themselves report about us what kind of an entrance we had with you and how you turned to God. I love, I mean, we could just ask, have you turned to God? It means you've turned from sin and self. Have you turned to God and righteousness? It's that shift of the needle on the compass. Not just a shift, but an utter about face. We get the picture then of something beautiful and wonderful. Repentance is not, is not a, simply a law word. It is not a negative word. It's not a dirty word. You know, repent where we're, you know. No, repent. Right. 
The repentance that God commands and that is required of you and of me is not something negative or something of lesser importance or value than faith. But it is a precious gift. Oh, for those who know the gift of repentance. It is imparted to us in and through God's covenant of grace. Which is why I love how the chapter on repentance is titled in our confession. I love this. This is, this is beautiful. Because they, they, they titled it not of repentance. They titled it of repentance unto life and salvation. Repentance, therefore, is both an evangelical command, an imperative, and an evangelical gospel. Grace. Oh, oh. That, that repentance is a, is a turning from sin and a turning unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Not the old flesh obedience, but new spirit-empowered obedience. That that is the case is seen in the fact that when Jesus warned the Pharisees and, uh, sorry, John warned the Pharisees and Sadducees who were coming to him for baptism, he said to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now notice, bearing fruit is not is not repentance. Bearing fruit is not repentance. It is in keeping with repentance. In Acts 26, Paul testified before King Agrippa that he did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but he kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God Practicing deeds appropriate to repentance. Again, watch closely. Repentance is not the deeds that I do. The deeds that I do are appropriate to repentance. We're never told, for example, bear fruit unto the forgiveness of sins. Never told that. We're not told, practice these deeds unto the forgiveness of sins. What are we told? Repent. Repent unto the forgiveness of sins. With a a view to the forgiveness of sins. Why repent? Why, 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 doesn't that still sound like I'm being being forgiven because of my works? Well, Peter is not saying... Repent, because then you will have... The forgiveness of sins is the result of repentance, or that repentance is the cause of forgiveness of sins. That's not what he's saying. We'll come back to that in a minute. Repentance, therefore, is not the same thing as its fruits and deeds, but it is a turning unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after. Those are the key words. A new purpose because of a new orientation, a new endeavoring after something After these fruits and these deeds. So rather than being about a specific level of obedience or holiness that we must attain to. It is about the fundamental and defining orientation of my life. Of who I now am. I may be far away from the holy state that God has called me to. Far, far away. But there's an orientation now. There's been that change. Do we have this repentance unto life and salvation? Have you turned from your sin unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new spirit-empowered obedience? Now then, in order to understand repentance, and in a sense this is a topical message, it's also, we're going to go through this text, but, but repentance is just one of those words that we need to understand. So... To understand it, we have to understand its relationship with faith. We've already seen that there are places in the Bible where the sinners... What is your saving response to the gospel to be? What is your saving response to the gospel to be? You can sum it up in one word. Repent. Right? But then there are other places where a sinner's saving response to the gospel is summed up with a different 
word, one word, one word, believe. So Jesus said, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. Paul and Silas said to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What that tells us then automatically is that repentance and faith are, are very, very inextricably bound up together. There are other places in the Bible where the sinner's saving response to the gospel, what is your response to be? It's summed up in two words. Repent and believe. Mark says that Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The Apostle Paul said to the Ephesian elders, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks about these two things, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, repentance is, this is a good example, repentance is more often associated with God, perhaps God the Father, God, whereas faith is, is often associated with its direction to our Lord Jesus Christ. On the one hand, don't confuse the two. Don't confuse repentance with faith. Why is that important? Because what are we justified by? Faith. Faith what? Faith alone. Are we justified by repentance? The answer is no. We are not justified by repentance or by penance or by anything else but faith alone. And yet, if repentance is a turning away from my sin and a turning to God and righteousness, then that turning unto God must only be possible because of faith in Jesus. I cannot turn to God apart from faith in Jesus. And so, oh, this is one of my favorite parts in the confession or catechism. It puts it so, so beautifully. Here's the catechism's answer to what is repentance. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. Look how they just snuck that in there, right? They didn't really sneak it in, did they? That is, I, 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 I repent of the very essence of repentance is that I have apprehended the mercy of God in Christ. That is saving faith. And so I do with grief and hatred of my CERN, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Of the essence of repentance within it, making it possible, is that apprehending God's mercy in Christ, which is saving faith. I can't say it better than that. So while repentance is not the same thing as faith, we must always distinguish repentance from faith. They are not the same thing. Yet faith is so necessarily bound up in and with repentance that to call the people to repent is to call them to the saving faith. It is. Indeed, here in Acts chapter 2, We read, and Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ. What is baptism in the name of Jesus Christ? And by the way, he's not saying we should baptize not in the name of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but only in the name of Jesus Christ. This is not a baptismal formula. He's saying that this baptism is different from all other baptisms because it's Jesus' baptism. It's the, it's the baptism he commanded. He's also saying that baptism in the name of Jesus Christ means baptism, as one commentator says, by his authority 
acknowledging his claims, subscribing to his doctrines, engaging in his service, and important, relying on his merits. What is that? What is relying on his merits? What's one word summary for that? Faith. So if Christian baptism is a baptism of repentance, what else is it? It's a baptism of saving faith. Ananias says to Paul, Now why do you delay? Rise up and be baptized. And wash away your sins. And what accompanies baptism? Calling on his name. On his name. The name in whom we are baptized. Reminds us of Peter's quotation from Joel. And it will be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be, will be saved. So when Peter says, be baptized in the name of the Lord, be baptized in the name of Jesus, what is he assuming? That we are calling upon that name. That that is the name upon which we call. Or as the confession puts it, that we are receiving and resting in your handout upon Christ alone for our salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Faith. Faith is not repentance. Repentance is itself not faith. But oh, how they are bound up together. Mm. So, we read in John chapter 1, but as many as received him, that's, a, that's, in a sense, a, a passive thing going on. We, we simply receive him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. When you're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, you're believing in his name, which is to say you're simply receiving him, resting upon him. Alone. Along with repentance, it is this saving faith that's represented by baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. So, repent, says Peter, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. For, or with a view to, the forgiveness of your sins. Okay, so, kind of the rubber hits the road here. Is Peter saying that forgiveness of sins is the result of my repentance? That's not what ace, the Greek word for, or unto, or with a view to. It's not what that means here. He's not saying that I'm forgiven because I've been baptized. When Peter calls the people to repent, he's not calling them to a legalistic, meritorious work. Repent. Turn, if you turn well enough, if you have enough psychological grief and whatever, you'll be forgiven. No. He's calling them to that turning from and turning to that is simply, you cannot escape the fact that that turning from and that turning to is inherent to and is even of the essence of saving faith. How can I apprehend the mercies of God in Jesus? And not turn from sin to God in Jesus. The turning is of the essence of saving faith. It's not the same thing. Peter's call then to repent is from beginning to end. Good news. I was so excited to say that. Repent is not bad news. Repent is good news. To those who have just asked the question, what can I do? Is there any hope for us? Peter answers, yes, repent for the forgiveness of your sins. (laughs) Likewise, when Peter calls the people to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, what is he telling them? Is Is he saying, go through this motion and you'll be forgiven? He's not calling them to a legalistic, meritorious work. He's calling them to that external sign of their repentance and their faith. 
And not only that, but that external sign of Christ's forgiving them and of the guilt and penalty of their sin and cleansing them from the stain and defilement of their sin. And so the gospel command to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ is from beginning to end. It is gospel good news. To those then who ask, men, brothers, what should we do? Peter answers, repent. Each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And by now that phrase is just exploding with meaning for us. You, but look at this, and each of you be baptized and you will receive, who will receive the Holy Spirit? Who will? You. Who Peter just got through saying a little bit earlier which was the very reason they're wondering, what can we do? Is there anything for us to do? You who nailed Jesus to a cross by the hands of lawless men, you who put him to death, will yourselves be welcomed into Christ's kingdom? You, you will receive all, not a minimized level because of the sin you were, you were partakers of, You will receive all the blessings, righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. All the blessings of the risen Messiah's present rule and reign of that one whom God has made both Lord and Christ. You will have all the blessings of his rule. The imperative of the gospel. The command of the gospel. Repent and be baptized. Is also the good news of the gospel. In other words, to all who have ever asked, what should I do? The answer is always given. There is no one who has ever told, there's no hope for you. And it's that good news that Peter emphasizes in verse 39. Look what he says. Because he he knows where these people are coming from. They're saying, what should I do? Can I do anything? Is there anything left for me? Is there any hope? Peter says, yes, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But Peter says, how can I say that? Right? Verse 39. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Again, it's as though Peter is anticipating their question, can the promise really be for me? And he answers with the sweetest, the most joyous good news that any sinner who has been made sensible of his sin could ever hear. Yes, the promise is for you. But have you been made sensible of your sin? See, no matter who you are, Peter would say to those asking what can we do, those who have been pierced to their hearts, no matter who you are or what you have done, both the gospel imperative, repent and be baptized, and the gospel promise for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit are always the same. Peter says the promise is for you, and then he says, and your children, and for all who are far off. I argue that the point of your children here is not household units, but rather the next generation. The promise is for you and for the next generation. It's not just for you. It continues. And by implication, therefore, it is for all generations, even unto the end of the age. The promise isn't just for them, but for their children. The promise never expires. This is not a promise with an expiration date on it. It's the same every generation until Christ returns, which means it's the same today. The promise is the same. The gospel command is the same. Even as the promise extends to all who are far off in time, to your children, to those who come after, so it also extends to all who are far off in place, even to the Gentiles. Peter's thinking of Isaiah 57. God says, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. 
It's like, it's like God, God had seen those people and their ways and killing and murdering and putting to death his own anointed Messiah, his son whom he sent into the world. That's what they did to his son. And he will judge them. But for all those who come to repentance, he heals them. I will lead him and pay him and his mourners in full with comfort, creating the praise of the lips, peace, peace, to him who is far. And to him who is near, says Yahweh, and I will heal him. I who have seen his ways will heal him. Now then, this is really important. On what basis can Peter say all this? Yep, yep. Really, is there no one beyond this? Is there no one too sinful? Like, look, remember, Peter, what we did. And the answer is that Peter can say this because he can also say, in the end, that the promise is for as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And Peter isn't, his whole idea here isn't to limit and to, and to do, the, do the whole limiting thing, although there is that here. But that's not his point. His point is, that's why this promise is for you. Right? It's good news. He's thinking of Joel chapter 2. And it will be that everyone who calls on the name of, of Yahweh will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as Yahweh has said, even among the survivors whom Yahweh calls. What does that mean? The promise. The promise is not finally dependent upon anything that we have done. Not even on our repenting. Not even on our believing. Not even on our being baptized or calling upon the name of the Lord but upon the sovereign grace of him who calls us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Peter says, you know how I can tell you this promise is for you who are asking me, what can I do? Because the promise is for all whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so, with many other words, Peter solemnly bore witness and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this crooked generation. If there are two, there are many applications that you can go home. And again, I mean, this is, it could go on forever, but the two main obvious ones here are that I ought to, as a preacher of the gospel, exhort you with many words to repent. Don't turn. Turn from your sin, from self. Turn to God and to righteousness. Repent. I pray that you might apprehend the mercy of God in Christ. And so that in the apprehending of that, You'll just be like turning. Just it, it's a choice you make, but but it's irresistible. We find that we are compelled in the end. That the orientation of my life is not what it was before. There are two applications. One is to exhort you and call you to repent, and to be called myself to this repentant life. But but also to make sure that the gospel we preach to others always issues in the call and the divine and the representation of the divine command to repent. By now we should understand that repentance is not the same thing as feeling shame. True conviction of guilt is not the same thing as feeling broken or wounded. In our culture, in our day, we have, in a, in a um, well-motivated, I, I perhaps, desire to be compassionate and loving and tender and to show the tenderness of Christ. I was just reading this morning in Matthew 
8 where it says, Jesus walked into the house and saw Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever and he touched her hand. Healed her of the fever. So it's, it's, we ought to be full of that kind of tenderness and pity and compassion. And, and the leper who said, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I am willing. And he, and he touched him. He didn't need to touch him. I mean, I know he was making a point that the leper is unclean. Jesus is not going to be defiled by his uncleanness by touching him. But, but even with Peter's mother-in-law, he touched her. He didn't need to touch her, but he touched her hand. There's tenderness there. But we also remember that just because someone is, is wounded, is suffered, just because someone is broken, that because someone has felt shame, it's not the same thing as conviction of guilt and coming judgment. Neither is it the same thing as repentance. So in our gospel, we must not be ashamed, we must not be hesitant to call everyone, everywhere, to repent. The passive imperative, Peter says, Peter says, be saved from this crooked generation. That's a passive imperative. Be saved. It complements the active imperative, repent. In other words, allow yourselves to be saved. Why will you die? Right? So I would say the same thing to you. Why will you die? Allow yourselves to be saved. What he's saying by that is do not harden your hearts. That's what he's saying. It's not like we're in control in the driver's seat, which is what makes him a little nervous with passive imperatives. He's not saying, but he's basically saying, do not harden your hearts, but rather repent. Each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And here's the promise. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's his promise to us today. Repent and you will be saved. For the promise is for you, your children, all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. I got ahead of myself. I put it at the end um, here, but let us first of all then be sure that we have repented. That having been made sensible of the manifold evils of my sin, I have turned from my sin. No, I haven't said enough. And having apprehended the mercy of God in Christ, I have turned from my sin unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. And then let us be sure that the gospel we preach to sinners always issues in a call to that gospel grace which is repentance unto life and salvation. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, how can we, all of us, not be humbled now before your word? To be mindful, to be made sensible by your spirit of the manifold evils of our sin. Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you would give us that that good and right self-abhorrency. That, that, that recognition of, of what the, the prophet Isaiah saw. Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. Help us to see. Make us sensible to that, even as Christians, to, to some extent, We so often remain insensible to these things. But we thank you, Lord, that if we we are your children, that we have come to repentance, that there has been that fundamental shift, that, that orientation in our lives where because we have apprehended your mercy in Christ and come to rest, therefore, fully upon him, we have turned. And oh, what a, what a wonderful, precious gift is your gift of repentance to us. 
Lord, should there be anyone here who has not turned, who has not repented, Lord, we pray that for your work in, in their hearts and minds, even now, let them, let them know the good news of this gospel command and the good news of that gospel promise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.